right, it's time to turn to John 18. We're back in the Gospel of John. Our uh, little trip to Psalms is over for now. We'll go back there when we, after we finish uh, the Gospel of John. Um, I wanted to kind of time all of this so that we're at the resurrection on Resurrection Day. So uh, that's why you've got your little break in Psalms. Um, and that's also why I had uh, Marty read the first part of chapter 18 to kind of get us back grounded into the context of what's going on uh, as we look at 12 through 18 this morning. So hear the word of our God. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Light of the world, you have shone into darkness. You have come to bring truth and life to people like us. So help us to see the truth and to enjoy the life that you brought. Help us to understand, believe, and love the truth that is here in the Scriptures by illuminating and sanctifying through the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Black History Month. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. And one of the things I would encourage you to do if you hadn't, haven't already done this is perhaps to watch the movie Selma. Because we often forget how we got to this point. We sometimes wonder why things are so um, combustible. Because the Civil War and slavery seems so far away from us, but things are not really so far away from us. Part of what triggers the events in the movie Selma, and because it takes place in Selma, Alabama primarily, is uh, voting. And the ways in which African Americans were kept from voting. Now, they had the legal right to vote, 
But the way the laws were structured in certain parts of the country made it very difficult for them to actually vote. And so what they wanted to do is to remove those obstacles so that they could enjoy the privilege that they had by right of citizenship. And I think in the midst of uh, this story, we essentially meet three groups of people that we also find, I think, in John 18. We see those who are of hard heart, who are oppressing other people, and actively working to prevent them from justice, from receiving their proper due. We see as well, in the guise of the protesters, those who are seeking, actively seeking to end injustice. What goes, I think, largely unnoticed and forgotten is the third group, those who passively sit by and watch, helping neither side, but still by their inaction, allowing the injustice to continue. I see these three things when I look at this text. I want us to importantly remember that Jesus died for the hard-hearted and the weak-willed, the first and last group that I mentioned. Let's look at this. We see, first of all, that hard-hearted, hard, I'm going to mess this up the entire time, I know. It's one of those tongue twisters. Hard-hearted. Unbelievers pursue injustice. And this is the reality that we face in this world. It's full of injustice. And we see here that Jesus is about to be on the receiving end of injustice. Jesus who up to this point we have read through the Gospel of John, has faithfully obeyed the Father. He has faithfully said everything the Father told him to say. He's faithfully done everything the Father has told him to do. And now he reaches that time when he is going to have to lay down his life. We see that this whole event is marked by the reality of the betrayal. Now, we read about that in the first part of this chapter. Marty read about that in the first part of this chapter. And let's not kind of forget that because it has to shape how we look at it. I hadn't really thought about it until I was reading Sproul on this. And, and he noted that reality that when Paul speaks of this night, when we come to the table, what is it that we say? On the night he was betrayed. That is how Paul saw it. That is how Paul received it. And that is how Paul communicated it. And we receive it. The betrayal of Jesus, which he prophesied, which was declared in the Old Testament scriptures as going to take place, has taken place and has begun the series of events that are about to unfold in the rest of John's gospel. It's moving towards the cross. But it's a painful ride there. 
Recall what happened in the garden. Recall those things that Marty read to us this morning already. What took place when they showed up to arrest him? We see the power of Jesus revealed. He says, you know, we're here to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, I am him. He invokes the divine name, the I am. They fall back. His power revealed. Not only that, but Peter, the impetuous one, always it seems, takes the short sword that he has and he strikes one of the servants of the high priest named Malchus, taking his ear off. And Jesus, we don't see it here in John's Gospel, but we see it um, in Luke's Gospel, heals Malchus from this injury he has sustained. And so these soldiers who have come to take Jesus away experience firsthand his power when he but speaks to them. They experience his power as they witness, although it may have been difficult to understand in the darkness with just the flickering lights and you know torches and lamps they had, but still, the man is healed. His ear is restored. And that speaks to the hard-heartedness that they had and that they continued to arrest him. Think of earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 7, there were soldiers that had been sent to arrest Jesus. And all they did was listen to him speak. And they went back and said, we can't do it. We've heard him. <laughs> he speaks the words of God. And so those men were tender-hearted, so to speak. They knew there was more going on than, the, than what they could perceive. These men, however, Jew and Gentile, proceed with the unjust arrest of Jesus. They arrest him and they bind him. They put ropes or shackles around him, and yet we see that Jesus goes willingly. He was not resisting. He, this is not an episode of cops where, you know, inevitably the bad guy runs away. You know, we, Amy and I were watching um, Death in Paradise the other day, and it was amusing because usually they never run in Death in Paradise. I'm not sure why. But this is one of the few episodes where the guy tried to make a break for it. And it's like, you're on a tiny island in the Caribbean. Where are you going to go? Really? Okay. We would be tempted, of course, to run if the authorities come for us. We are tempted to fight back, especially if we perceive it to be an injustice. Jesus hands himself over to them. He's not crying out. He's going along willingly. Why is this? Well, they're, they're binding him as if he is a, a common criminal. And they lead him, so to speak, like a sheep to the slaughter. And the first place they bring him is to the courtyard of Annas. Now, Annas is an interesting figure. Annas is not the high priest. Annas used to be the high priest. He was the high priest from A.D. 6 to about A.D. 15. And this is where we get into the realities of Roman rule, okay? Because in the Old Testament, the high priest was priest for life, or when he was no longer able to serve due to infirmity. Okay, so it was a lifelong position, 
Well, the Romans liked to assert their authority over the people that they have subjugated. And one of the ways they asserted their authority over the Jews was that they, they appointed the high priest. And so at the, the governor's whim or indiscretion, he could remove, depose the high priest and put someone else in his place. Okay, this is one of the ways you just remembered we're in control, not you. Okay, so Annas was deposed in 15, but he remained a very powerful man. He was so powerful that five of his sons would eventually become high priests. And at this point in time, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. Now, it's a little misleading, when, so to speak, when John says he was high priest that year. It makes it sound like it was an annual sort of thing, but it was not an annual uh, you know, reaffirmation of his high priestliness. There are certain denominations where every year the, uh, the pastor has a uh, vote of confidence, and if he gets a proper vote of confidence, he stays for another year. But if he doesn't, bye-bye, pastor. Okay, this is not the idea. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, pulling for that, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to live on eggshells every year, you know. Um, kind of keeps you from doing that which you need to do as a pastor. Um, so this is during Caiaphas's time. And so that's what's odd about it is that he's not brought to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin first. He's brought to Annas first, because Annas is the power broker. He's the man behind the curtain that's pulling all of the strings and using his wealth and influence for other people, including, at this point, his son-in-law. And so Jesus is brought to him. Annas and the others are also among those who are hard of heart, precisely because they're putting together essentially a kangaroo court in order to put Jesus down unjustly. Jesus says, uh, we've, well, we only read part of Psalm 22 this morning. If we continued in Psalm 22, it talks about the bulls that encircle him. It talks about the dogs that are you know, enraged and attacking him. Jesus is entering into the, the ring, so to speak, with the bulls, and the dogs who seek to devour him. That is what's going on. We see this reflected in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And let's stop right there for a second. We have to remember that this is in accordance with God's plan. This is not a mistake. This is not one of those things where, oops, didn't think of this one. Okay, on the one hand, this is God's definite plan. Okay, This was established before time that this was going to take place. And yet we see also personal responsibility as well as we continue in Acts 2 where it says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's speaking, You Jews had him killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is now entering into the hands of those lawless men, which will culminate in his crucifixion, his unjust crucifixion. For he committed no crime guilty of his crucifixion. Well, 
You know, we still live in a world full of injustice. We still live in a world filled with hard-hearted people who exercise power, whether it's legitimate power or illegitimate power, they still exercise it illegitimately to oppress other people. We still live in that kind of world. Sometimes we bear the brunt of that injustice. Unfortunately, sometimes we can be the unjust person in power. Let's remember that among those who were supporting the Jim Crow laws, among those who were taking up their bats and other things, tear gas and everything else to oppress these people, were those who called upon the name of Jesus. Let's not pretend that none of them were Christians. Okay? Sometimes we are the ones who wield the sword wrongly. Sometimes we're the ones who are hard-hearted. It doesn't have to be as evil. It doesn't have to look as bad as what we see in, we saw in Selma, for instance. When I was working in Boston, I usually commuted with one of my friends. And so our commute was, you know, uh, we drive from New Hampshire into uh, Billerica, Massachusetts, hop on the train, which brings us to North Station, and then we'd either walk or take the T over to Tremont. Okay? Well, that day he was working on a project, so he said, you know, like at last minute, just go without me, I'm, I'm going to be late. And so I'm looking at my watch, which I actually did wear a watch then, um, and it's like, I need to move. So if I'm going to catch my train, I, I'm running through the streets of Boston. Okay, trying to get to North Station in time. And then sort of like, it's just one of those things. Why do people do the things they do? This, this homeless guy just suddenly jumps in front of me. That's my perception. He probably didn't jump. But I'm running down the sidewalk, and this guy gets in my way wanting help. All I'm thinking about is I need to make my train. I need to make my train. Time is ticking. Get out of my way, dude. And so I... I said, nope, sorry, can't help you, bye. And it's not until I'm sitting on my train when the reality hits me, when, you know, Matthew 25 comes into my brain, and I go, was that, that was one of the least of these, and that's what I have done. Sometimes we can be hard-hearted in that way, so centered in ourselves and our own needs and wants that we overlook the needs of other people. That can be us. And so injustice is committed by hard-hearted people who are committed to self-preservation. Secondly, weak-willed disciples falter at times. They aren't the only people that John is focusing on. He says that while Jesus was bound and he's brought in alone, two of his disciples follow to see kind of how this is going to unfold. They hadn't really been listening to Jesus, maybe. The other guys, we're not sure, he doesn't say what happens to them, but he focuses on these two. Now, we have Peter, and we have the mystery man. The one whose identity is not revealed to us here in the text. 
There are many who believe that this mystery disciple is John himself. Now, it's difficult to say. One reason they think it's John is because of the additional details that are found in his account. Not only do we have Malchus in the garden, but we have these other, these other things that are kind of played out around, the, around the, the courtyard that only John records, and so many people think, obviously, John was there. He must be the, the one who was known to the high priest. Okay? What we do know, we do know that John's father had some degree of wealth. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, and immediately Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and here's the key phrase, with the hired servants and followed him. Now, on the one hand, he's got some money because he's got hired servants, but he's not, as I would probably say, rich. He's not a one percenter because he's in the boat. Right? Okay, if you ask Donald Trump, he's, you know, if he goes on the construction site, he's got his hard hat on, but I'm sure he has his business suit and he's walking around. He's not picking up a jackhammer. Okay? He's not lugging cement or supplies. Okay? He's a one percenter. And so John was not, while he's from a family with some measure of means, he is not amongst the elite. Sproul notes, that there was some evidence that John was part of a priestly group that was within the Sanhedrin. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't mention that evidence, so there's no way of evaluating that evidence. But I mentioned it. I throw it out there just because. All right. Others, and I incline myself towards this direction, think that it is more natural for it to be someone like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus because they had access to the Sanhedrin because they were Pharisees. They may have been there because they knew the actions that they, the Sanhedrin was going to take, and they, they go and they see what transpires in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they follow back and go to the courtyard. And because they are known to the high priest and therefore known to the servants, they're able to go right into the courtyard. But Peter is not. But what I want us to think about for a moment is the fact of this person, known to the high priest, I would imagine therefore known to his father-in-law Caiaphas, he's known to the people around him, does he say anything? No. There's no cry of, this is unjust, this is wrong, we shouldn't do this, we've got to stop, Jesus is an innocent man. He falters in, his, in the weakness of his, of his will. This disciple falters and refuses to speak so that the injustice is able to continue. The one thing he does do is he goes and he talks to the servant girl who's guarding the door. She's the doorkeeper. And she says, I know that guy. Let him in. And so Peter is able to come in. But before Peter comes in, he must, in a sense, face the most fearsome, the most terrifying servant girl that has ever lived. (laughs) 
because she asks him the simple question, are also, uh, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And I'm sure she had secret powers, rays that come out of her eyes or other things that, that made Peter quiver in his sandals because he did. Peter, who just hours before had rather loudly proclaimed that he was never going to forsake Jesus, that he was never going to deny Jesus, that he would never, ever, ever betray Jesus, was told by Jesus that before that night was done, three times you're going to do this. And here comes the first fastball right down the middle of the plate, Strike one. Because terrified of this woman, he says, I am not. Perhaps it was the incident. Many of these people would have known Malchus. And if they had heard that he had been injured, even though he had been healed, there might be some bitter feelings. We don't know what's going through Peter's mind at this moment. But he chooses not to identify with Jesus. He's weak-willed. He falters. He refuses to stand up as a follower of Jesus and refuses to stand up and say, what you're doing is wrong. I know this man, and what you're saying about him isn't true. He falters. As Christians, we too often falter like Peter. We can falter when we have the opportunity to self-identify with Jesus. We can falter in the face of injustice. We cannot stand firm at times. I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the ends of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, Peter, uh, Paul wrote that with regard to the Old Testament stories. But it's just as true with regard to the New Testament stories. We should be gentle with Peter. Okay? Precisely because... We have that same character flaw that Peter does. That we, when, the, when it calls for gentleness, we tend to be tough. And when it calls for toughness, we tend to be wimpy. Because of the corruption that we've inherited from Adam, we get it all wrong. We're hard-hearted when we shouldn't be. We're weak-willed when we shouldn't be. And so that's why I think of those Selma bystanders that should have risen up and said, what you're doing is wrong. Put the dogs away. Put the, put the um, water hoses away. Put the tear gas away. Put the bats away. Put it away because it's wrong. And they didn't. They just were like rubberneckers. Couldn't walk away and they 
couldn't help watching. We're too often like that person because we fear man. We're afraid of what people in power might do. We're afraid, we're afraid of the gaze of injustice to be turned upon us. We're afraid of rejection at the hands of those whom we revere more than we revere God Himself, who alone has the power not just to destroy the body, but to destroy the soul in hell. We forget about His power to deliver us from hell. His power to deliver us from the hands of unjust people. We forget about things like Daniel and the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We forget He's able, more than able, to deliver us from the hands of unjust people when He so chooses. And so injustice is often excused or perpetuated by weak-willed people unwilling to oppose the hard-hearted. Let's get some good news here. The good news can only be found in Jesus. Jesus, who was obedient unto death for His people. In Matthew's account of what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to Peter, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus was able to defend Himself. Jesus was able to bring others to defend Himself. But we don't see Jesus breaking free like Samson. We don't see Jesus calling down angels. We don't see Jesus calling down fire as uh, the brothers of, you know, the sons of thunder wanted to do. Okay? Jesus is not using Jedi mind tricks. This is not the rabbi you're looking for. Okay? He doesn't try to argue with them. Like we see in Isaiah 53, like a sheep before its shears, he was silent. And so Jesus is embracing this as the will of the Father for him. This is what he and the Father agreed to before the foundation of time as part of that eternal covenant of redemption. The time has come. So we see when we read Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time points not just to the sending of the Son, the being born of a woman by the Son, but also the laying down of His life for the redemption of those who were under the law. The definite plan and foreknowledge, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He knew this was the hour. And so this is the time when Jesus didn't slip away. And we, we saw that in other passages in John where Jesus slips away. This time, He doesn't. And it's not like He tried and failed. He doesn't try. 
but he embraces the moment even though he is at the mercy, so to speak, of hard-hearted people who are about to perpetrate injustice upon him. This is the beginning of the passive obedience of Jesus. The active obedience points to his active obedience towards the, the law of God. He actively obeyed. He chose to obey and do those things which the law commanded him to do. But now Jesus is passively submitting to the will of God, the decree of God, not the law of God, and is going to suffer death for his people. And not just death. It is a particular death, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2, even death on a cross. It's not that Jesus could redeem us by dying any old way, by getting hit by a camel, or getting sick and dying because there's no medication. His death is intended to be one that is connected with the curse. It must be an execution because we are the ones who have earned a curse, the curse. Okay. Jesus, who broke no law, was still arrested in our place because we have broken God's law. Jesus, who was no threat, was bound as if he was because we would have resisted, because we would have posed a threat, and he stands in our place. Jesus, who will judge the world justly, was led to unjust judges in our place to receive the punishment we have earned. Jesus, unlike us, did not panic, either because of the hard-hearted or the weak-willed. He was not shaking in his boots because of Annas and Caiaphas. Neither was he broken and destroyed by his friends denying him. We have a hard time figuring that one out, don't we? We're devastated when someone denies us. And Jesus was not devastated. Why? John reminds us of what Caiaphas said in his cynicism that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. It was good, it was right, it was necessary that this would take place. This is the gospel mystery. The undeserving suffering for the deserving in order to gain their pardon. And that's what sets Jesus apart from what we see in Selma because they're looking for their own freedom. Jesus was not. He was looking solely for the freedom of others, the hard-hearted and the weak-willed. He didn't come just for the weak-willed. He also came for the hard-hearted. He took the penalty for his people's hard hearts and weak wills. In other words, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. 
And now here's the amazing thing. Not only does he remove the guilt when we trust him of our hard-heartedness and the guilt of our weak wills, but when we trust Christ, we don't have to be afraid of either hard-heartedness or weak wills. Whether we find them in ourselves, which we certainly will at times, or whether we find them in other people, which we certainly will at times. But as we're united to Him, we not only experience the pardon that we desperately need, we also receive the courage that we desperately need to stand in the face of injustice. To be courageous, not hard. So the world is filled with hard-hearted people and the world is filled with weak-willed people. And sometimes they are the same person at different moments. And justice flourishes because of such people. Jesus, however, enters into this world in order to suffer at the hands of the hard-hearted and the weak-willed in order to rescue the hard-hearted and the weak-willed. And whichever you happen to be at any particular moment, you can look to Him who sits upon the throne of grace and you can receive mercy and grace according to your need. You can cry out, right now, I'm hard-hearted. I know the good I should do and I don't do it. Or you can cry out, I am weak-willed. Right now, I am afraid. Right now, I want to cave in to the pressure that's around me and do that which I know I should not do. You have such needs. But if you are in Christ, you have such a Savior to help you in such needs. Let's pray. Father, often we are blind to our hard-heartedness because it's tied into our self-righteousness. It's tied in with our self-reliance. And we're often blind to it. And so often, Father, we are overwhelmed by our weak will. The accuser reminds us of those times when we have faltered. He indeed has wanted to sift us like he wanted to sift Peter. But I thank you that we have a great high priest in heaven, not like Annas, but Jesus. A great high priest who lives forever to intercede for us in order that he might save us to the uttermost. And so even our faltering will not destroy the peace of God which we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Because He has laid down His life for us for that very reason. To redeem us from our hard-heartedness. To redeem us from our weakness. 
Father, help us to grasp that. Help us to own that. Help that to really drive the gospel home to us. Father, we we see the gospel as a good thing, but sometimes we hold it at a distance, fearing the ways in which it will change us. Change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.